Section 5 of The Common Reader This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Hanna Ponomarenko. The Common Reader by Virginia Woolf. Notes on an Elizabethan play. There are, it must be admitted, some highly formidable tracts in English literature, and chief among them that jungle, forest, and wilderness, which is Elizabethan drama. For many reasons, not here to be examined, Shakespeare stands out. Shakespeare, who has had the light on him from his days to ours, Shakespeare, who towers highest when looked at from the level of his own contemporaries. But the place of the lesser Elizabethans, Green, Decker, Peel, Chapman, Bumun, and Fletcher, to adventure into the wilderness is, for the ordinary reader, an ordeal, an upsetting experience, which plies him with questions, hurries him with doubts, alternately delights and vexes him with pleasures and pains. For we are apt to forget reading, as we tend to do only the masterpieces of a bygone age, how great a power the body of a literature possesses to impose itself, how it will not suffer itself to be read passively, but takes us and reads us, flouts our preconceptions, questions principles which we had got into the habit of taking for granted, and, in fact, splits us into two parts as we read, making us, even as we enjoy, yield our ground or stick to our guns. At the outset, in reading an Elizabethan play, we are overcome by the extraordinary discrepancy between the Elizabethan view of reality and our own. The reality to which we have grown accustomed is speaking roughly based upon the life and death of some knight called Smith, who succeeded his father in the family business of pitwood importers, timber merchants and coal exporters, was well known in political temperance and church circles, did much for the poor of Liverpool, and died last Wednesday of pneumonia while on a visit to his son at Muswell Hill. That is the world we know. That is the reality which our poets and novelists have to expound and illuminate. Then we open the first Elizabethan play that comes to hand and read how I once did see, in my young travels through Armenia, an angry unicorn in his full career, charged with too swift a foot a jeweler that watched him for the treasure of his brow, and ere he could get shelter of a tree, nailed him with his rich altars to the earth. Where is Smith? We ask where is Liverpool, and the growls of Elizabethan drama echo, where? Exquisite in the delight, 
sublime the relief of being set free to wander in the land of the unicorn and the javeler among dukes and grandees, Gonzalos and Bilimperias, who spend their lives in murder and intrigue, dress up as men if they are women, as women if they are men, see ghosts, run mad, and die in the greatest profusion on the slightest provocation, uttering as they fall imprecations of superb vigor or edges of the wildest despair. But soon the low, the relentless voice, which if we wish to identify it, we must suppose typical of a reader fed on modern English literature and French, and Russian asks why, then with all this to stimulate and enchant these old plays are for long stretches of time so intolerably dull. Is it not that literature, if it is to keep us on the alert through five acts or thirty-two chapters, must somehow be based on Smith, have one tour touching Liverpool take off into whatever heights in pleasure from reality? We are not so purblind as to suppose that a man, because his name is Smith and he lives in Liverpool, is therefore real. We know indeed that this reality is a chameleon quality, the fantastic becoming, as we grow used to it, often the closest to the truth, the sober, the furthest from it, and nothing proving a writer's greatness more than his capacity to consolidate his scene by the use of what, until he touches them, seemed wisps of cloud and threads of gossamer. Our contention merely is that there is a station somewhere in the mid-air where Smith and Liverpool can be seen to the best advantage, that the great artist is the man who knows where to place himself above the shifting scenery, that while he never loses sight of Liverpool, he never sees it in the wrong perspective. The Elizabethans bore us, then, because their Smith are all changed to dukes, their Liverpools, to fabulous islands and palaces in Genoa. Instead of keeping a proper poise above life, they soar miles into the Empyrean, where nothing is visible for long hours at a time but clouds at their revelry, and the cloud landscape is not ultimately satisfactory to human eyes. The Elizabethans bore us because they suffocate our imaginations rather than send them to work. Still, though, potent enough, the boredom of an Elizabethan play is of a different quality altogether from the boredom which a 19th century play, a Tennyson or a Henry Taylor play, inflicts. The riot of images the violent volubility of language, all that claws and satiates in the Elizabethans yet appears to be drawn up with a roar as a feeble fire is sucked up by a newspaper. There is, even in the worst, an intermittent bowling vigor 
which gives us the sense in our quiet armchairs of ostlers and orange girls catching up the lines, flinging them back, hissing or stamping applause. But the deliberate drama of the Victorian age is evidently written in a study. It has Forodian's ticking clocks and rows of classics bound in half Morocco. There is no stamping, no applause. It does not, as with all its faults, the Elizabethan audience did, leaving the mass with fire. Rhetorical and bombastic, the lines are flying and hired into existence and reach the same impromptu facilities, have the same lip-molded profusion and unexpectedness which speech sometimes achieves. But seldom in our days the deliberate, solitary pen. Indeed, half the work of the dramatists one feels was done in the Elizabethan age by the public. Against that, however, it is to be said the fact that the influence of the public was in many respects detestable. To its door we must lay the greatest infliction that Elizabethan drama puts upon us, the plot. The incessant, improbable, almost unintelligible convolutions, which presumably gratified the spirit of an excitable and unlettered public actually in the playhouse, but only confuse and fatigue a reader with the book before him. Undoubtedly something must happen. Undoubtedly a play where nothing happens is an impossibility. But we have right to demand, since the Greeks have proved that it is perfectly possible that what happens shall have an end in view. It shall agitate great emotions, bring into existence memorable scenes, steer the actors to say what could not be said without this stimulus. Nobody can fail to remember the plots of the Antigone, because what happens is so closely bound up with the emotions of the actors that we remember the people and the plot at one and the same time. But who can tell us what happens in The White Devil or The Maid's Tragedy except by remembering the story apart from the emotions which it has roused? As for the lesser Elizabethans, like Green and Kidd, the complexities of their plots are so great, and the violence which those plots demand so terrific that the actors themselves are obliterated and emotions which, according to our convention at least, deserve the most careful investigation, the most delicate analysis, are clean-sponged of the slate, and the result is inevitable. Outside Shakespeare and perhaps Ben Johnson, there are no characters in Elizabethan drama, only violences whom we know so little that we can scarcely care what becomes of them. Take any hero or heroine in those early plays. Belimperia in the Spanish tragedy will serve as well as another, and can we honestly say 
that we care and judge for the unfortunate lady who runs the whole gamut of human misery to kill herself in the end. No more than for an animated broomstick, we must reply, and in a work dealing with men and women, the prevalence of broomsticks is a drawback. But the Spanish tragedy is admittedly a crude forerunner, chiefly valuable because such primitive efforts lay bare the formidable framework which greedy dramatists could modify but had to use. Ford, it is claimed, is of the school of Stendhal and Flaubert. Ford is a psychologist. Ford is an analyst. This man, said Mr. Havelock Ellis, writes of women not as dramatist nor as lover, but as one who has searched intimately and felt with instinctive sympathy the fibers of their heart. The play, Tis Pity, She's a Whore, upon which this judgment is chiefly based, shows us the whole nature of Annabella, spun from pole to pole in a series of tremendous vicissitudes. First, her brother tells her that he loves her. Next, she confesses her love for him. Next, finds herself with child by him. Next, forces herself to marry Soranzo. Next, is discovered. Next, repents. Finally, is killed. And it is her lover and brother who kills her. To trace the trial of feelings which such crises and calamities might be expected to breed in a woman of ordinary sensibility might have filled volumes. A dramatist, of course, has no volumes to fill. He is forced to contract. Even so, he can illumine. He can reveal enough for us to guess the rest. But what is it that we know without using microscopes and splitting hairs about the character of Annabella? Gropingly, we make out that she is a spirited girl with her defiance of her husband when he abuses her, her snatches of Italian song, her ready wit, her simple, glad lovemaking. But of character, as we understand the word, there is no trace. We do not know how she reaches her conclusions, only that she has reached them. Nobody describes her. She is always at the height of her passion, never at its approach. Compare her with Anna Karenina. The Russian woman is flesh and blood, nerves and temperament, has heart, brain, body and mind, where the English girl is flat and crude, as a face pendant on a playing card. She is without death, without range, without intricacy. But as we say this, 
We know that we have missed something. We have let the meaning of the place slip through our hands. We have ignored the emotion which has been accumulating because it has accumulated in places where we have not expected to find it. We have been comparing the play with prose, and the play, after all, is poetry. The play is poetry, we say, and the novel prose. Let us attempt to obliterate the tale and place the two before us side by side, feeling, so far as we can, the angles and edges of each, recalling each so far as we are able as a whole. Then at once the prime differences emerge. The long, leisurely accumulated novel, the little, contracted play, the emotion all split up, dissipated and then woven together, slowly and gradually massed into a whole in the novel. The emotion concentrated, generalized, heightened in the play. What moments of intensity, what phrases of astonishing beauty the play shot at us. Oh, my lords, I but deceived your eyes with antique gesture when one youth's stride came huddling on another. Oh, death, and death, and death, still I danced forward. Or you have oft for these two leaps neglected Kesha or the natural sweets of the spring violet. They are not yet much withered. With all her reality, Anna Karenina could never say you have oft for these two leaps neglected Kesha. Some of the most profound of human emotions are therefore beyond her reach. The extremes of passion are not for the novelist. The perfect marriages of sense and sound are not for him. He must tame his sweetness to sluggardry, keep his eyes on the ground, not on the sky, suggest by description, not revealed by illumination. Instead of singing, lay a garland on my hairs of the dismal you, maidens, willow branches bear, say I died true. He must enumerate the chrysanthemums fading on the grave and the undertaker's men snuffling past in their four-wheelers. How then can we compare this lumbering and lagging art with poetry? Granted all the little extorities by which the novelist makes us know the individual and recognize the real, the dramatist goes beyond the single and the separate, shows us not Annabella in love, but love itself, not Anna Karina throwing herself under the train, but ruin and death and the soul like a ship in a black storm, driven I know not whither. 
So, with pardonable impatience, we might exclaim as we shut our Elizabethan play. But what, then, is the exclamation with which we close war and peace? Not one of disappointment. We are not left lamenting the superficiality, upbraiding the triviality of the novelist's art. Rather, we are made more than ever aware of the inexhaustible richness of human sensibility. Here in the play, we recognize the general. Here in the novel, the particular. Here we gather all our energies into a bunch and spring. Here we extend and expand, and let come slowly in form all quarters deliberate impressions, accumulated messages. The mind is so saturated with sensibility, language so inadequate to its experience, that far from ruling off one form of the literature or degreeing its inferiority to others, we complain that they are still unable to keep pace with the wealth of material and wait impassionately the creation of what may yet be devised to liberate us of the enormous burden of the unexpressed. Thus, in spite of dullness, bombast, rhetorical and confusion, we still read the lesser Elizabethans, still find ourselves adventuring in the land of the jeweler and unicorn. The familiar factories of Liverpool fade into thin air and we scarcely recognize any likeness between the knight who imported timber and died of pneumonia at Muswell Hill and the Armenian duke who fell like a Roman on his sword while the owl shrieked in the ivy and the duchess gave birth to a stillborn babe amongst women howling. To join those territories and recognize the same men in different disguises, we have to adjust and revise. But to make the necessary alterations in perspective, draw in those filaments of sensibility which the moderns have so marvelously developed, use instead the ear and the eye which the moderns have so basely starved, hear words as they loud and shouted, not as they are printed in black letters on the page. See before your eyes the changing faces and living bodies of men and women. Put yourself, in short, into a different, but not more elementary, stage of your reading development, and then the true merits of the Elizabethan drama will assert themselves. The power of the whole is undeniable. Theirs, too, is the words coining genius, as if thoughts plunged into a sea with words and came up dripping. Theirs is that broad humor based upon the nakedness of the body, which, however arduously the public spirited may try, is impossible since the body is trapped. 
then at the back of this imposing not unity but some sort of stability is what we may briefly call a sense of the presence of the gods he would be a bold critic who should attempt to impose any creed upon the swarm and variety of the elizabethan dramatists and yet it implies some timidity if we take it for granted that a whole literature with common characteristics is the mere evaporation of high spirits and money-making enterprise a fluke of the mind which owing to favorable circumstances came off successfully even in the jungle and the wilderness the compass still points lord lord that i were dead they are forever crying o thou soft nature of death that art joined twin to sweetness slumber the pageant of the world is marvellous but the pageant of the world is vanity glories of human greatness are but pleasing dreams and shadows soon decaying on the stage of my mortality my youth has acted some scenes of vanity to die and be quit of it all is their desire the bell that tolls throughout the drama is death and disenchantment all life is but a wandering to find home when we are gone we're there ruin weariness death perpetually death stands grimly to confront the other presence of elizabethan drama which is life life compact of frigates fir trees and ivory of dolphins and the juice of july flowers of the milk of unicorns and panthers breath of robes of pearl brains of peacocks and cretan wine to this life at its most reckless and abundant they reply man is a tree that has no top in cares no root in comforts all his power to live is given to no end but to have power to grieve it is this echo flying back and back from the other side of the play which if it has not a name still has the effect of the presence of the gods so we ramble through the jungle forest and wilderness of elizabethan drama so we consort with emperors and clowns jewelers and unicorns and laugh and exult and marvel at the splendor and humor and fantasy of it all a noble rage consumes us when the curtain falls we are bored too and nauseated by the wearisome old tricks and florid bombast a dozen deaths of full-grown men and women move us less than the suffering of one of tolstoy's flies 
wandering in the maze of the impossible and tedious story suddenly some passionate intensity seizes us some sublimity exalts or some melodious snatch of song enchants it is a world full of tedium and delight pleasure and curiosity extravagant laughter poetry and splendor but gradually it comes over us what then are we being denied what is it that we are coming to want so persistently that unless we get it instantly we must seek elsewhere it is solitude there is no privacy here always the door opens and someone comes in always shared made visible audible dramatic meanwhile as if tired with company the mind steals off to muse in solitude to think not to act to comment not to share to explore its own darkness not the bright lit up surfaces of others it turns to dawn to maintain to sir thomas brown the keepers of the keys of solitude and of section five